Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Camera Podcast, pubs, pints, and people. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Camera Podcast, pubs, pints, and people. This is a show where you can learn all about beer, cider, pubs, and of course, just enjoy a bit of banter with us. My name's Katie Wiles, and I'm joined by Ant Fiorillo and Matt Bundy. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. I'd say I'm really excited this week. We've got a brand new design, haven't we? A lovely mm. illustration. We're all looking brand spanking new, very posh. <laughs> and it's actually been done for us by the very talented Dan Button, who we want to thank him. He's even done a stenciled illustration of the three of us having a beer, which is <laughs> lovely. It kind of takes us back. Of course, we can't actually sit in the same room at in, the moment. in real life <laughs> no. at the moment, but we can on paper. So it's lovely to have it. It looks absolutely amazing. So a huge thank you to Dan. I do feel a little bit like Kate Winslet in Titanic being drawn like one of his French girls. Oh, well, wow. Thank you for <laughs> 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 but thank you so much for that, Dan. Uh, now listen, we've also branched out. We've set ourselves up on social media. I mean, we are moving with the times, folks. So make sure you give us a little follow. All you need to do is search Pubs, Pints, People on Twitter. That's our handle. We're there. Say hello. Ask us some questions. Don't be shy. Share us some stories. You know, whatever you like. It's all good. And just want to say a huge thank you to all the volunteers who've come forward with episode ideas, offering to help with the editing, taking on interviews, all this design work and everything. It's really wonderful to have more people on board, Cameras volunteer-led organisation. So it's a real success to have lots of volunteers involved in the project. So thank you, everyone. And if anyone wants to get involved, just email us on podcast at camera.org.uk. Absolutely. I mean, that's how Anne and I started out, wasn't it? One, <laughs> one day oh, got an email so... through with volunteer, you know. It... And now she can't get rid of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get weekly phone calls from me now. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, even if you don't want to volunteer, you can do something just as important for us, which is to rate the podcast, subscribe, share, just get everybody involved and help spread the word. We really appreciate all your help telling people about us. And I think every time we get a rating or a subscription coming through, it gives us a warm feeling in our hearts so thank you this week we're going to learn all about the world of foraging and mixed fermentation so probably not something that springs to mind when you're thinking about having a beer no you know it's not high on my list personally but you know what we're going to learn all about some brewers who are sourcing their own ingredients from the wild and making some really exciting brews now firstly we're speaking with tom norton and he's from the little earth project and then we're sitting down with fergus fitzgerald he's the legend head brewer at Adnams Brewery and we're learning all about their hops collective. Now I'll tell you what, when I think of mixed fermentation, the only one I can really think of that I've tried is a Belgian Lambic. 
I know, I know that they kind of you know, use the, the natural yeast and they kind of don't use the cultured products in a way, but that's the only one I can think of. Have you tried them before? I went over to Brussels for camera business a few years back and I was not that impressed by Alembic. I know I don't sound like a proper beer geek now, but it's like having a Sour Patch Kid <laughs> treat or something. <laughs> it's so sour. Um, and that's just not really something I've been able to wrap my head around. What about yourself, Anne? No, do you know what? It's not It's not something I've uh, ventured out into, but do you know what i am always open for tasting and trying new things but in these moments of lockdown i'm sticking safe you know I'm wanting, <laughs> if i'm gonna part with cash i'll drink something and i'm gonna enjoy for the time being <laughs> i mean some people really love sour beers for me it's never been a, something i've been particularly drawn to however i was sitting down with emma inch a few years back at a beer and food event and she was telling me about how to reframe what i was thinking about when having the beer so before taking a sip of the sour beer she was like think that you're gonna have a sip of red wine not a beer and that totally changed my perception of what I was Mm. about to drink and it made it actually really enjoyable whereas if I was thinking I was about to have like a pale ale or an IPA it would have been just not (laughs) it wouldn't have gone down well at all well I'll tell you what we'll find out all about sour beers and more next so we're going to hand over to Ant who spoke with the Little Earth Project about some of their brews over to you Ant learn and discover So today I'm joined by Tom Norton from Little Earth Brewery. Situated in the picturesque Suffolk countryside and established in 2016, Little Earth Project specialises in brewing historic farmhouse and wild beers using wild and organically farmed ingredients from the local landscape. The brewery is small but unique and has rightly been recognised in the years since its inception for its contribution to sustainable brewing and creating exciting wild beers using the best of what Mother Nature has to offer. So tell me, where does all this come from? What was the idea with Little Earth Brewery? It actually goes back quite a long way. From when I was very young, my parents made a little bit of cider. It was a hobby mainly, but they did sell a little bit to local pubs and uh, camera beer festivals. But All they did is press apples and let the juice naturally ferment using the yeast on the skins of the apples. It was kind of quite a dry East Anglian style cider. So we use quite a few cooking apples in it. So it's got that sharpness, that sourness. And it's also got that kind of slight unpredictability you get from from using wild yeast. So if you wind forward a few years, as a family, we became involved in a country pub, the White Horse in Edwardston. And we decided to build a little brewery around the back. We were concentrating on mainly doing kind of fairly traditional cask beers. We like to think of ourselves as as kind of fairly forward thinking as well. So we were one of the first breweries to use lots of these kind of new hops that were around at that, at that time. So this was kind of 10, 15 years ago. But it got to a point in 2016 where we kind of could see the market moving in a different direction. And we also had this interest in sour beers. So we kind of thought, how can we combine the cider making and the beer making? And we came up with Little Earth Project. So what we do is produce sour beers mainly, but our main aim is to use as much local ingredients as possible and then ferment it in the same way as we ferment the cider. Wonderful. So sour beers principally, do you brew anything else? Because of the nature of the the beers that we make, some are more sour than others, but they all tend to have a bit of a sour kick compared to traditionally made beers. So how would somebody recognise those styles if they were looking out for them? 
That's a good question, actually. Obviously, kind of original sour beers that have been available in recent years have been Belgian. So you get lambic beers and gers that are produced just using a natural inoculation of the wort. It's only in recent years that British breweries have started producing these kind of beers. They're trying to do it in their own way, like the way that we're doing it with the cider yeast that gives the beer almost a cidery taste. So I I assume then with the project itself that there's naturally a lot of foraging. Do you forage specific ingredients for the brews or is it a case of going out and, and being inspired by nature or is it perhaps a bit of both? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of both. We brew the beers and we don't know how they're going to finish up. So it's not like when you're brewing a normal beer and you have a recipe and you have a flavour profile that you're aiming for. So we will have an idea of what we want the beer to be like, but we'll put it down in an oak barrel and maybe in a year's time it will go in a a different direction to how we thought it was going to go. And we might think at that point it would be nice to add some locally foraged damsons, for example. Mm. So we take our cues from where the beer's going, but obviously foraging is very seasonal as well. So sometimes we will aim to have a beer that would be great with a elderflower, for example, that's ready kind of this time of year, because obviously that's when you can forage for elderflower. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both, really. Essentially, you could end up with something completely different to what you intended on producing when you started brewing it then. Yeah. I suppose in some ways that means that you've got complete freedom with what you brew so do you ever aim for a consistency in flavor profile or is that just something that doesn't go hand in hand with the type of beers that you brew we don't tend to re-brew beers and if we do we give each batch kind of a different name we'll call it batch one or blend one or blend two just because we know that there will be differences even if we're aiming for something very similar but we normally try and put a bit of a twist on each on each year's uh, brew as well just to keep it interesting but also just to try and kind of improve things every time we brew something. The oak barrels that we use, for example, some of them will be previously used for wine or whiskey, and some of them will be ones that we've used before ourselves, maybe once or twice or three times. So every time you put beer into these barrels, that flavour profile is changing as well. So it kind of evolves over time. So in terms of foraging for the ingredients, you've already alluded to the fact that you you try and stay within certain points of the year, depending on what it is that you want to brew, elderflower being the example that you used. So does that mean then that throughout the year you're looking for different things and therefore look to brew different beers? Because it takes quite a long time for our beers to to be ready. You kind of sometimes have to work it a year or more in advance. But yeah, if we've got space in the brewery and I know that I can brew a beer that can be ready in a year's time in early autumn, for example, I might think let's brew a kind of a strong porter that we can put plums in this time next year. So, yeah, we're always looking quite far ahead in terms of the foraging. But there's normally something to forage nearly all year. Right in the middle of the winter, it's a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Normally from kind of early spring to late autumn, you can find something to forage. (laughs) So do you do all the foraging yourself? Is it it a a case of getting volunteers in? I should imagine that this is fairly hefty quantities of things that you're looking for. Yeah, it's fairly time consuming. The, The way that we work, well, our production is on a fairly small scale. So I do have time to do some of the foraging myself. But we also have a couple of people that do kind of some part time jobs around the brewery that go and do some foraging. And we've also got a field where we grow some of our own ingredients that's kind of very much worked by hand. So we grow some of our own hops. So there's always things to do. (laughs) Yeah, I bet Uh, there is. We keep ourselves busy. 
I suppose what's quite nice about that as well is that if everybody spends if nothing but just a couple of hours helping get these raw ingredients in, there's that wonderful sense of ownership to the end product, isn't it? That everybody's in some way touched the ingredients that go into to making that beer. Yeah, when we first started Little Earth, we wanted it to be something that was business, but a small and manageable business that we could uh, employ people that we knew and we trusted and also be very hands on with the way that we do things. So try and grow as much of our own ingredients, including barley and hops and do as much of it by hand. So we've got a very manual kit. The bottling that we do is pretty much done all by hand, as is the labelling of the bottle. So everything has kind of been touched and kind of looked after by uh, by just a small team. Real artists and products then. Yeah. You've mentioned that you use oak barrel sometimes. What does that do to the overall flavour profile for your beers? Well, we've actually just recently done a yearly beer called Organic Harvest Saison. Uh, and we did three batches this year, but it's actually brewed in September. And what we do with that beer is we use fresh hops, so wet or green hops, they call them. And we primary ferment the beer with a uh, Belgian Saison yeast and then put it into oak for a relatively short amount of time. So about five months, again, with our wild yeast. But yeah, last year's beer, we uh, split into some red wine barrels, um, a French Chardonnay barrel and a 450 litre whiskey butt. Wow. And then bottled them all separately so people could uh, kind of pick up on the little nuances that the different types of barrel bring. And they are noticeably different. So the red wine one has got this kind of slightly tannins that kind of help balance the beer a little bit. And the, the white wine one has got some very definite kind of grape flavours there. And the whiskey one has got almost like a slightly vanilla flavour coming from the from the oak. It all sounds wonderfully exciting, Tom. What's been the most unusual beer that you've brewed to date? Well, a few years ago, we brewed a barley wine that's uh, about 16.5%. So it's quite strong. <laughs> <laughs> got a bit of a kick then. <laughs> uh, yeah. We boiled the wort for quite a long time, so more than 24 hours. And what that did is it reduced all the sugars down, kind of caramelised the wort. So we ended up with a beer that was quite dark, even though we used just pale malt in its production. And then we fermented that with our own wild yeast. So what you've got is something that's kind of quite sweet and sour at the same time, but also got a bit of a bit of a kick to it. But um, we produced it as a beer that you could keep and it would improve with age. And uh, it's kind of almost got a sherry like character to it. For listeners that might not be familiar with what mixed fermentation is, can you give us a bit more of an overview of how that works and, and how that applies to the sour beer world? Mixed fermentation is basically just using more than one strain of yeast and or bacteria to produce beer. So most beer that's produced is just fermented using one strain of yeast. So probably 99% of the beer that's uh, available in the in the shops. But we kind of looked back to history and before about 100 years ago, there wasn't such thing as yeast labs or places where you could propagate one type of yeast. So before then, most beer would have been mixed fermentation to some degree, just because yeast comes from the wild. It comes from the the kind of environment where you are. And there's hundreds of different types in the environment. Yeah. <laughs> so what tended to happen is beer was either drunk very young before it was able to be soured by the type of bacteria and yeast that would uh, produce sourness, or it would be 
if brewers didn't want the beer to become sour, they'd use lots of hops, which is where kind of hop started to be introduced to beer. So we kind of look at mixed fermentation as kind of a, a historic thing. And we kind of do it in our own way, which is by introducing our mixed culture of yeast from the natural cider that we make. There's a few reasons why we went down that path, partly because if a mixture of yeast and bacteria has fermented apple juice and produced something tasty, then the chances are it will ferment, yeah. <laughs> ferment, ferment beer wort and produce something tasty. So, yeah, basically mixed fermentation is using more than one type of yeast. And what you tend to end up with is a slightly more complex flavour. You also end up with a, a longer fermentation because these wild yeast will ferment more of the sugar than normal brewer's yeast will. Hence why we use wooden barrels and the beer takes quite a lot long, long time to produce. So if somebody is a home brewer at home and they wanted to introduce some foraged ingredients into their own drinks, where would you recommend they start and perhaps what would they start with? To start with, you've kind of got to be fairly careful when you're using foraged ingredients. You know, I, I, there's there's certainly kind of commercial breweries that have used things like foraged mushrooms in beer. And uh, <laughs> certainly when you're looking at that, then you'd uh, you'd want to be very careful what you're putting. Absolutely. In your beer. And even things like elderflower, the, the kind of the woody stems of the elderflower plant are poisonous. So number one, I'd say be careful. <laughs> sure. uh, but there are plenty of plants that you can go out and forage. And uh, I'd just say just do a bit of research, even just put some stuff into Google and see what comes up. And then before you just dump something in a beer, taste what you're foraging, smell it and try and think about what flavours in a beer that would work with. So maybe think about some of those things as well and think, is it going to go with the other flavours in the beer? In terms of quantities, I'd probably start small as well. And then you can, uh, you know, you can always put more of a flavour in and it's quite difficult to take it, take it away. Absolutely. <laughs> Tom Norton, it's been a pleasure having you here. Hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Learn and discover. Wow, they really take brewing to a whole other level, don't they? I mean, planning your brews years in advance, being happy to have them come out different every time. It's so different to what we were talking about with Mark Dredge a few weeks ago about lager and that dependency on having it be a consistent brew every time. I just love the idea of when they're planning in advance for what they're going to be able to forage at the right time. So it's about trying to make a beer from the of ingredients that's going to go with the natural flavour of elderflower because mm. that's something that they could forage. I'd love to see the kind of a beautiful mind spreadsheet room they have with all the workings out on the wall where they're trying to uh, work out all the different things to be ready at the right time. It sounds great. I actually didn't know that you could add in things, not just elderflower, but mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, yeah, it, sounds a little bit dangerous. He did say to be careful, didn't he? You know, that's what I loved about it. I remember asking the question, you know, so what advice would you give? And he's like, yeah, you just, just be careful um, <laughs> because there's, there's alcohol and there's ABV and then there's a trip. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to accidentally poison yourself in the uh, making of a beer do you <laughs> it's crazy stuff do you know what though it sounds like something you might get into Matt with your cider making and brewing do you fancy throwing something into that cider batch when you're next brewing I think it sounds quite similar to the choice you face when you're making cider so you can buy in you know your cultured champagne yeast or you can just tear open the barrel top and just let whatever natural yeast is kind of come into the and make it all cloudy you know that's how you get yourself mm. a really proper kind of scrumpy old style treat and i like the idea that some of their beers have a bit of a cider like flavor you know so i feel like it's something i need to get into 
Mm, it seems like a bit of a mix between cider making and brewing, doesn't it? But with the freedom of complete experimentation and going, do you know, we know that we're not going to hit something consistent this year or next year. That's the beauty of it. We'll just call it batch two, three, four and five. And we'll just make some notes. Love that. <laughs> well, speaking of cider, we've got a great little recipe this week from Sue Nowak. And it looks amazing. It's called a flummery dessert. And I'm learning all sorts of new food terms. So it's got Aspel's Imperial Cider in a champagne flute next to two wine glasses, which look like they're filled with strawberries and whipped cream and berries. I mean, wow. <laughs> this just looks oh, so yeah. nice, doesn't it? This could be my favourite recipe today. Let's have a look at what Sue's written for this one. And remember, the recipe's in the show notes, and we'll even throw this on the Twitter feed for you to have a look at. Remember, at Pubs, Pints and People. <laughs> uh, so, here's what she writes. Flummery. What a luscious lip-smacking word. It just rolls around the tongue. And it is a word with more than one meaning. In the past week, it's rather described as what we've been getting up to from our politicians on various topics. I was driving 200 miles up from Barnard Castle to see if the old jalopy could hit 110 on the M6, officer. Flummery. (laughs) It's a a dictionary definition. It tells us the word flummery indicates meaningless flattery. And there's a bit about that as well. So my more favourite definition of flummery, as Sue writes, is as a dessert and it's dating back to the 17th century. And even there we find duality. The Scots make Highland flummery involving oats, honey, cream and a wee dram. The English style is more of a creamy jelly set in a mould and I take a bit of both. So porridge base with the fruity whipped cream topping to create a cool, decadent dessert, rightly so for the heat wave. My wee dram is Aspel's Imperial Cider from Suffolk made from a single year's harvest of bittersweet apples. And that is precisely the taste in every sip. Dark gold with a lively champagne sparkle. It is temptingly Moorish, but be warned, the 8.2% ABV is not to be, wait for it, trifled with. (laughs) Hey! Hey, go on, Sue. (laughs) I couldn't get that out for salivating on that one. Mm. You've taken me on a journey there. Uh, Sue's taken taken us on a journey all the way to Durham and back there. I was was whisked away. I've uh, I've, I've just ordered some of uh, some special brew dog beer called Barnard Castle Eye Test. I saw that! I saw (laughs) it! I thought, you know, if anyone's going to do it and have a bit of a punch, it was always going to be brew dog, wasn't it? Yeah, I've got some minutes. Four weeks since they started making it again, though, apparently it all sold out, so I've got to wait for quite a while. I'll tell you what, that recipe, I think... The main thing is that we all need a bit of luxury, don't we, mm. at home at the moment? Sales at the moment are cream teas and, you know, pre-made cocktails and all the premium foods and things are, are through the roof. People are looking for a bit of luxury, and I think that's the perfect recipe to enjoy that, especially with a bit of Aspel's Imperial. That is a, that's a decadent cider, I would say. Oh, yeah. Perfect. That looks so nice. I'm <laughs> definitely going to have to try and make that this week. And if you're looking for some cider aperis to tide you over during lockdown, we've got a map of cider producers that are offering takeaway and delivery services on our pulling together campaign page and you can also use a brew to you app so check that out see if you can get a nice cider delivered this week and try out sue's recipe definitely but before you go off making your flummeries we've got another great little interview and this time it's our correspondent in the field adam taylor he's going to be sitting down with fergus fitzgerald who's the head brewer at adnams brewery he's mm. going to learn about their hop collective desert island beer I'm here with Fergus Fitzgerald from Adams Brewery. Pleasure to be, well, I'm here and you're there, but pleasure to be here. If you could just uh, kick us off by telling us about the Hopville project, that'd be great. Yeah, so it's something we started, I think, back in 2014 was the first year we did it. But we, we sort of wanted to do a sort of a community sort of project, but also 
do something around green hops as well. So what we did is we we asked people to to pick it to pick hops in their gardens, pick wild hops where they where they've got permission to get, sort of pick them, bring them all together, uh, and then we make this one beer a year out of it uh, called Wild Hop. And then when it's brewed and packaged, then we get all those hop pickers together, have a party, everyone gets a taste, and everyone gets to take some beer away. So it was a way of just getting people together, uh, getting people I guess back into knowing what beer is really and uh, i think people we're, we're obviously involved in the beer industry we know what beer is made of but lots of people don't know what a hop is so you know getting people involved in the ingredients again so it was quite a nice community thing to, to sort of do and it was quite a i suppose at the time it was quite a new thing for us to, to try and do but it's now it's now one of the things we, we sort of look forward to every year that sort of variation and, and the see, see what turns up in terms of the hops so when you first did it, what was the reaction like to it? Uh, I think the first year, I think everyone thought it was a bit weird, so <laughs> that was all right. Uh, but but I think lots of people were really interested in it because uh, it was that, that sort of education, actually, what is a hop? What does it look like? How do I know I'm picking the right thing? So I think the local papers did a, f- a little bit about it because it was it was quite new at the time. Uh, so we did get lots of people further afield were sending hops in. Someone even posted in one hop cone in a little envelope in to, to just to, so they could be part of the part of the sort of group really, uh, which was quite fun. Uh, but we have people who do send in very small amounts to very large amounts. So we've got a guy called Mark Dauber who runs the Anchor over in Warburswick uh, and he grows hops in the Garden of the Pub. So uh, he probably donates the biggest amounts. So we take big sort of builder rubble sacks over there and, and pick them up from there. But most of the time, it's sort of much smaller uh, individual home garden sort of thing. The first year was a learning curve for all of us, but it was quite exciting, I think. Can you just explain to listeners the difference between brewing a beer with freshly picked hop as opposed to the usual dried hops? Obviously, there's one hop harvest a year everywhere. Obviously, depending where you're picking it, depends on the time of the year, but there's one harvest a year. And so for those hops to see you through the year, those hops are generally dried to take the moisture content down really low so those hops will then last for the year. They're, they're usually then packaged under CO2 or, w- or whatever else to try and preserve them, but it is getting the moisture down is the biggest the biggest thing. So that heating process will change the hops slightly, will drive off some hop aromas and change some of the other aromas to something else. So the, the idea with a green hop beer is that you use the hops straight off the field, basically. That heat process doesn't ever happen, so you keep that, the green hop flavors really which are quite fresh quite grassy and that, that sort of thing what we do with ours is because we get from lots of people over a period of time we get them all together and we freeze them until the point that we got it we have enough basically to warrant doing the brew have you brewed beers with other foraged ingredients we have done a few we did one with magic rock I can't remember now, maybe three, four years ago. We did a beer called Herbalist, and we used some pineapple weed and some other bits and pieces in there. But it was the pineapple weed to go and forage that, because it's very hard to get anyone to go and sell you pineapple weed. So we, little bits like that. Most of the time, we it's botanicals we buy in. So we've obviously got the distillery on site as well. So usually we've got a good supply of or good access to different sort of botanicals, but not very often forage. But every now and again, we, we dip in and do a little bit. So when you do a forage beer, how do you go about finding the uh, ingredients? With the pineapple, I knew where there was some growing. When we came to do the beer that the herbalist with Magic Rock, I suggested we, we added that in because I knew where that was. So I think it's it's always difficult to try and do it the other way around, to come up with an idea of a herb or a botanical you want to add in and then try and find out where it's growing, where you can have access to it as well. You need to remember, I think, with forage beers or forage ingredients that you need to have permission to actually to harvest them and, and to use them. If you're going to be doing it in a commercial product, if it's something you're going to make for yourself, then that's fine. But if it's something you're going to do in a commercial product, you do have to have permission to do it. So yeah, you've got to be careful about what, where you pick stuff. And also you, you have to think about what possibly has been sprayed on it. So one of the things, particularly with the, the hops, we ask people to sort of 
find out some information about what's been sprayed around or near it just to make sure that there isn't anything anything nasty being sort of sprayed in that area. But then we do test the beer as well to make sure there was no pesticides or anything prevalent in the beer. You're in Southwold in Suffolk. Would you say it's a good area to be in growing hops and foraging? It's a good area for growing hops. I think actually hops are, are relatively easy to grow. They need some water, but apart from that, they'll tend to grow pretty well by themselves. I know lots of people who have hops who don't really want hops, uh, but still struggle to, struggle to get them out to stop them growing. So they've been described, I think, as a pernicious weed in some segments, but I would disagree with that. I'd like to quickly ask you about the reaction that your kind of more experimental beers get, because it seems to me that you're a brewery, you know, you're, you've been around for a very long time, but at the same time, people seem to be a bit more accepting of, you know, Adnams doing experimental beers than they are perhaps some other bigger breweries do experimental beers. We've obviously been around for quite a long time. I sort of think that most breweries who have been around a long time, they always have to change. I think there's this idea that mm -hmm. uh, old breweries just keep producing the same thing they've always produced. That's not really true. Any brewery that's been around for a long time has had to change over that period of time. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't exist anymore. If you look through lots of our old brewing books, like for the early 1900s, you'll see it's almost wall-to-wall -wall mild. Obviously, if that's the only thing we did today, we wouldn't exist. I think the thing that's changed is really the speed of change now. You have to change a bit more frequently than perhaps you maybe would have done 100 years ago. But I think we've always liked experimenting. We've always liked brewing, I think, is the, is the, is the point, really. We get a chance to try new things. And I do think the best way of finding out what's going to work and the best way of finding out what what's really going to sell is to try something new put it out there and see what people think because ultimately the people who are going to drink it are going to decide whether it's going to be a successful beer or not i'd like to hear your desert island beer uh it's, it's a horrible question i hate i hate <laughs> questions like that um, <laughs> i'm not going to pick an adam's beer I, I probably would pick an adam's beer but just to have to so you can you can have okay. an adam's beer and have one from someone else so i'm, I'm going to pick go ship as my, as my adam's beer just because it's it's the beer it's 10 years old this year anyway, but it's, it was probably my, one of the first beers I, I developed at them. So I'm going to pick that one. The interloper then, I think I'm going to go with Orval. And I know, oh, well, lots of people think Orval is put on a pedestal, uh, undeservingly, but for me, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing beer and it changes so much. And one of the things I quite like about cast beer, and this is, this is probably something that lots of people hate about cast beer is that it changes. So the same beer in cask on day one is different to the same beer on cask on, th on day three. And particularly with, if it's dry hopped in cask, it will change over the length of its shelf life. And I quite like that. I quite like the natural variations in flavor. Thank you very much, Fergus, for your time. Desert Island Beer. Well, I tell you what, I love the sound of the Hops Collective. What a great little community project. And, and right now in the lockdown where sense of community is really thriving, I think it could be wonderful. And I think it's really important for brewers to be looking at these initiatives because we're seeing more and more of the global brewers actually buying up the world's supply of hops and then charging a premium rate to sell them back. And, and looking at this local sourcing, I think, can make a real step towards sustainability, create that sense of ownership. I love the description of hops as a uh, pernicious weed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where people are trying to get rid of them. I think pernicious weed, that's going to be the, the title of my first home-brewed beer. I mean, Love it's going it. to go on, go on the bottle. But <laughs> I think what I like about it is the, this idea of having local prominence, you know, some hops from different areas, given a different taste that's, that comes from the surroundings. You know, wine builds a lot on that, don't they? I think beer should have a lot more of that as well. I guess it's like when you get local honey, apparently that's meant to help specifically with local allergies. Yeah. So it's meant to be about help you with hay fever because it's based on the pollen that's in the surrounding places. So oh. maybe 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 beer, local beer from local hops can cure hay 
hay fever. Right. Do you know, I need some maybe local even, beer. Yeah, I was going to say, I need, I need local honey beer. That's what I need in my yeah. life. Because right my poor hay fever this past week has not been kind to me at all. I actually went to visit a hop farm a few months ago when I went to the Little Pomona Orchard and their new tap room is actually based on the Brookhouse Hops Farm. And it was so much fun. I actually twisted the arm of one of the farmers to take me around and show me what it looked like. And it was huge. And I couldn't actually believe that the harvest is just once a year so in terms of actually brewing beer and getting those ingredients it is so very much tied in with the seasons in a way that you don't actually normally think about it as well yeah i bet the smell was overpowering was it while you were there oh yeah and i am <laughs> my colleague alex who comes on the show sometimes he does our learn and discover initiative at camera and a lot of that involves going to lots of camera beer festivals and having this learn and discover stand where people can go and they can touch and feel <laughs> the hops and the malts and all the ingredients so he's got these huge bags of hops in the cupboard right where the what's brewing archive is so whenever i open the door i'm like hit in the face with this blast of hops it's like very very <laughs> intense i tell you what he should send some of them into adnams i love that story about somebody sending in just one envelope with one hop in just to get <laughs> he, he could send in a little selection all different envelopes for your real good help tell you what speaking of hops we've got a hop related story for you listeners this week as we mm. dive into the archives again and this time we go back to january 1976 that's right get your platforms and your pink flares on we've got a great title for this piece which reads it's the death sentence for he-man hops <laughs> it reads terrible news has hit the male-dominated brewing world the recently published agricultural bill seeks to legislate against the growing of male hop plants in hop gardens in certain areas of the country. <gasps> Shock horror! So I love that title. That is clickbait before clickbait became a thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so so that, is, that is very provocative. Now, apparently, British brewers traditionally use hops that contain seeds unlike in continental Europe. So the actual hop cone used in brewing is the mature female flower, and hop growers have always planted, in the UK anyway, have always planted the odd male hop plant to provide sufficient pollen and, kind of, and increase the yield. So it reads here that apparently the Ministry of Agricultural seems to think that the hops are a potentially viable export commodity. Really? But because nobody other than the British likes seeds in the hops, the male hop plants will have to go. If anyone knows what actually happened with this story, write in. Do you actually use male hops? Have they been saved in Britain? Write to us on that Twitter handle, Pubs, Pints and People, and tell us what you think. I would be very intrigued. And with that, let's ding, ding the bell. Last Orders. Okay, I think it's time to swiftly move on to Last Orders. What are we drinking today, you two? Been uh, drinking Adnam's Ghost Ship. I've always got a bit of a selection of that in. It's one of my old favourites. And I knew that Adams were coming on the uh, on the show today, so I decided mm. to drink it in tribute. I've been in hop heaven this week. I've had the this Brewdog versus Cloudwater IPA. It's their New England IPA, and it's really nice, really hazy and hoppy. So perfect for this weather. As I said, I'm supposed to be in Boston right now, so trying my best to pretend I'm there with my New England <laughs> IPA, sitting in my paddling pool, pretending it's the beach. <laughs> oh, do you know what? Just like Matt, I've gone for an Adams beer this week in homage to. <laughs> Fergus coming onto the show, and I've actually gone for a broadside, uh, an Adnan's broadside, lovely ruby beer. 
so that is my drink of the week. Kate, I need to tell you this week on the show, you have inspired a friend of mine. He's an avid podcast listener. Chris, you're listening. Hello, sir. Has taken your recommendation from one of your lockdown drinks. It's the Roaster mm. Coaster, the Nitro Imperial Vietnamese coffee oh, stout. So good. <laughs> yeah, well, he has all over that. Sent me a picture with a couple of tins of it the other day and says, what a recommendation, really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, my father-in-law actually tried it when I saw him last week. Socially distant in the garden, obviously. <laughs> uh, but he's made me order one for this week, and we have to apparently split it because he doesn't trust himself to have a 9%, which is probably a good idea. <laughs> nice. Don't forget to join us next week. We're going to be sitting down with one of the four camera founders to learn a bit about what the campaign was like when it started in 1971, because wow. guess what? It's camera's 50th next year. So we're going to chat with Bill Mellor, and we're also going to have a sit down with Laura Hadlin, who is currently writing the camera biography for next year. And she actually just had a little baby last month. So yeah, super mum indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, before we leave, I'll give you a quote that i think is very appropriate for the situation that we're going through at the moment it's from abraham lincoln it says i'm a firm believer in the people if given the truth they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis the great point is to bring them the real facts and beer <laughs> did very he actually good. say that <laughs> yeah that's love that. That. I very i love that yeah. i tell you what boris matt and the rest of the cabinet i hope you're listening cheers, cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. 
And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.